1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, host joined as I am every single week by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, I think we'll, uh, we're going to talk some Cavs and some Guardians later. I want to get your thoughts on Evan Mobley and a story that Chris Fedor, our colleague, wrote about him the other day. But first, let's get into the Browns. And oh, at the end, we're going to read some more responses from fans where you ask people to send in why they're Cleveland sports fans. We got I think we've had some from Charleston, South Carolina, and the UK, and this week we have one from Kenya. So, wow! So go figure. But um, anyway, let's start with the Browns, Terry. Big news: We're taping this on Monday late afternoon. Deshaun Watson did not practice today. He well, he practiced, but he was inside, and he's everybody's wondering. Dave. He's day to day. He's day to day, as day-to-day. I guess we all are. Day, day, what did day, you Dave. What did you take out of Deshaun Watson practicing inside and not with his teammates out on the outside fields?
2: I should have. If I ever need a stone wall built, I think I should hire the coach Stefanski, because he was not getting anywhere near the Deshaun Watson thing, um, because I think he realized how he mishandled it the last time around with Watson's injury. Secondly, the fact that he wasn't out there throwing, and believe me, if he were healthy, they'd have him out there throwing. Then when you consider the fact that before the Baltimore game, I believe um, of the last 58 games Watson was eligible to play, he played in 57. So basically from the opening day of 2018, you know, through the... uh, six games that he played last year and up until that Baltimore game, he missed only one. And that is why I just felt, however, we're talking medically cleared and all this other garbage. um, If Watson were healthy, he was going to play. And and if you've been reading me and listening to me, I'm not a huge Watson fan and I'm really in the Watson still has got to show me. He's got to, you know, he's going to be consistently good, but, I think it is unfair when a guy has a track record of playing and playing hurt, and playing with a punctured lung, some other things,
1: to imply that he didn't want to go out there against Baltimore. Tomorrow's an off day. Tuesday's an off day. If he can't practice in a substantial way on Wednesday, I think they sit him. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you why. They don't, you don't want to go down the same road where it's like Friday, can he play, can he not play? DTR won't be able to prepare in the right way. It's just going to be a repeat. And the other thing is he is not going to come out of this game healthier than he is today. Like, this is a a brutal defense. Anybody who saw that game last night knows what I'm talking about. They took it to the Cowboys in a big way. You don't want a guy going in there with a a suspect shoulder. I mean, we're not doctors, but just in the long-term scheme of the season, they have some winnable games coming up. And playoff berths are one in in November and December. First of all, the 49ers, are, all five of their wins, all games, are
2: 5-0, and all. They, they've scored at least 30 points in all of them. So, by the way, that's going to be something really to watch for the defense. Can they go back to what we saw in the first three games? Or are they going to be the team that gave up 28 points and really had trouble with Lamar Jackson? Secondly, uh, they're winning, they being San Francisco, by an average of 19.8 points, so let's just say by 20. So they score 30 every game, and they win by 20. That is, I think, a very good plus minus. How's that? You don't have to be in analytics real deep to figure that out. Okay, thirdly, who says DTR starts? Yeah, I don't think that necessarily is true. And I know this. If I were Andrew Barry, I would say, you can't run that kid out there. I brought in P.J. Walker for a reason, too. And if you read the quote sheets and things, he did say that what Walker's been in there six weeks now and, you know, he's more or less up to speed. He's a veteran. I thought in reading that over, because I, I missed the initial press conference. I had a family matter to take care of. Um, he did leave the door open for Walker to play. He didn't commit to anybody. but you. Not that Walker's great, but you put that kid out there. Hey, welcome to the NFL. Baltimore and San Francisco, your first two games, it, that makes no sense. You have to bench them, you bench them, but you still have to put some, a viable product on the field as much as you can. And a quarterback that, I mean, last year, Walker, I believe he was uh, two and three as a starter, or three and two, I forgot which, either way. And his numbers were okay. And, you know, okay, that's all. I'm sitting there going, "Well, I wish I had Jacoby Brissett. Not that that would have helped. Maybe you don't be Baltimore anyway, but you would want you want a, you know, just an experienced hand. Like Indianapolis looks like they'll be playing. Have Gardner Minshew playing. I've always loved him as a backup quarterback. I think he's really good. I know at one point Andrew Berry tried to trade for him um, a couple years ago, so uh, they like him too. Is, Is there any reason? you would, even if Watson's reasonably healthy, you would not have had him out there Monday?
1: Just if you couldn't he do couldn't it, it and didn't want to see what he see looked like? He looked like. Maybe saying, they're playing they're close they're playing to the best. I don't kind of games. Actually, he's in really
2: good shape, but we're going to hide him in the, the field house. I, I don't buy that. David, do you think they'll be able to run the ball at all against San Francisco?
1: No. Yeah,
2: that's sort of the answer that I kind of came up with. Trouble to get gets about a hundred yards almost against anybody but by himself. So it's, it's, it's really, if you just get him a, a sliver of daylight and a half a second to react, you were going to get something good. Cause I think every year when pro football focus did those yards after contact or whatever thing, he was always number one or number two. Um, so we'll see about that, but I'll tell you, while we're dwelling on, um, Watts in the offense, I I want to see how that defense does against Brock Purdy and those guys. And, you know, they were running a scheme very similar to what Stefanski was running with Baker Mayfield. A lot of play action, you know, some of that jet sweeps and some of those kind of medium throws, short throws, get people in space. Uh, I've always thought that that's an effective offense for the most part. By the way, let's clear this up. You can't just put anybody in there. I've been getting emails. Well, you know, San Francisco finds a guy in the sixth round or fifth round, wherever Purdy was taken, and they drop him in there, and he's great. I'm like, this is almost like a – this is turning into Tom Brady. I don't mean he's going to win all those Super Bowls, but the sixth-round pick that was, you know, the 89th quarterback. Seven, in the draft. You know, I mean, Tony Romo was undrafted. I know that. He's one of the the, the greatest undrafted quarterbacks. It, it just doesn't happen. And it isn't simply Kyle Shanahan's system. You know, there was something with Purdy. Uh, but we can't have another repeat of what DTR did because I also think going out there against San Francisco, and if things get bad early in that game, there'll be just a feeling in the stadium and on this uh, with the players that, oh, we have no chance. So at least if PJ Walker could go out there and turn in a workman like performance. Um it might and he played he started five games last year. So it's not like he he started more games last year than d- Josh Dobbs did in his career. I think they have like ten ten opponents left because some of these are are games where they've played before. Seven of the ten opponents on the schedule have losing records at the moment. So you will run into Arizona, and Chicago. Um, I mean, look, Indianapolis is, is decent, but not great. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of the others. Um, and so I'm really thinking that uh, uh, it's not in any way, you know, over or whatnot. But they also, you don't want to bury yourself in the division. You know, I think they're playing Baltimore in early November. Uh, you're already one and two in the division. How about the Steelers?
1: That was something. Explain the
2: Steelers to me. The Steelers is the Steelers. To flip it the other (laughs) way, that's about what the Mike Tomlin fans would say, and they they boo their offensive coordinator probably for good reason. But they they are just tough hombres. Their defense is like, okay, if the offense won't score, I guess we got to do that too. Yep, yep. And by the way, that may be some of what, especially if Watson is hurt for a while. Um, Jim Schwartz is going to have to put that to his team. The one missing agreement ingredient has been turnovers on defense. And then the other excessive ingredients and turnovers on offense. When I asked Barry, what he wanted to see in the second half. And he said, numbers one through five, cut the turnovers, cut the turnovers, cut the turnovers, which he showed some personality for, for once, which is nice. Um, you know, they have 10 turnovers in the first four games. Watson has four. And now DTR at three in that last game. But um, you can't play that way either. But just looking at Stefanski in that press conference, he looked really grim. Watson, iffy. Chubb done for the year. Conklin done for the year, almost before it started.
1: Well, Terry, the injuries have started to pile up. Joel Batonio now is limping, and we don't know what his status is going to be for Sunday. Watson's situation Ethan Posich is banged up. You're missing your right tackle. You're starting running back. It's been a tough start of the season, but like we always say, playoffs are determined in November and December, and there's still a lot of football to go here. Browns and the 49ers will be down at the stadium on Sunday at 1 o'clock. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, I'm going to ask you, Terry, what you think about the possibility of Evan Mobley modeling his game after Bam Adebayo of the Miami Heat, and this is based on a story that our colleague Chris Fedor wrote the other day. We'll get into that and more when we return on Terry's Talking.
0: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zipline through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation, this is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this.
1: Adidas. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. We're going to get into the Cavaliers here. And before I forget, I don't know that I mentioned on last week's show, if you want to send us a comment, a question, a good story about Cleveland sports, you can just send it to our email address, which is sports at cleveland.com. And just put Terry's Talking in the subject line. So. Uh, Terry, for the Cavs today, I thought it'd be interesting to talk for a minute about this story that Chris Fedor, our colleague, had up. Evan Mobley has been talking to Max Struess and some other people, and he kind of got this idea that he should maybe look at some film of Bam Adebayo playing with the Heat since they had such great success last season with that great playoff run. And it got me thinking, like, you know, last year at this time, Chris wrote a story about how the Cavs think that... Evan Mobley can be an MVP-type player and that the ceiling is just so high for him. And I'm like, well, what, is, what does this mean that he's kind of looking at some Bam Adebayo film? And what about his game do you think Evan Mobley could learn from him do, do the Cavs? And do you think it's a good idea that he kind of patterns some of what he does after Bam?
2: What do you think? Well, why don't you say what exactly, or at least a paraphrase of what um, Evan meant by Bam Adebayo, what part of it, what, did, what was his point? Yeah,
1: just like... I mean, you know, Bam. I think is a is a four time All Star, um, NBA All NBA de- defender. Just the the pick and roll game seems to be a lot of what they were talking about, like with Struess, where it would be like a two man game between Bam and Struess, and whether the Cavs can use that same kind of actions and chemistry to get some shots for both of those guys, and could that work and I don't see why not. I guess it's just what do you want Evan Mobley's game to look like is the question.
2: The big question I've had is what what will it what's what fits with him as opposed to can he be Chris Bosch? I remember hearing that uh who kind of did a little bit of everything uh, very well. He averaged, you know, eight or nine rebounds, twenty points, except a couple of years he played with LeBron. Uh and then when he when LeBron left, I think he scored 22 points, and unfortunately then for uh, Bosch, um he had um, blood clots, and that ended his career. I think it's going to be hard to figure out what Mobley is just until he develops it on his own. Uh, I I think there is something to what JB said about he can get the rebound, take it down the uh I mean, just take the whole length of the court because he makes good decisions passing and he's pretty good ball handling. Uh, I Now, he talked a little more about shooting more from the outside. I didn't really am not looking forward to seeing Bam. I mean, Bam. <laughs> seeing, of course, that's a good thing. Bam doesn't fire up a bunch of threes and I don't want Evan to do that either. Uh, I mean, once in a while he could take one, but just, there's got to be more to life than dunks and three-pointers. And Evan can really, I think score in a lot of different ways, and I'm I'm anxious to see uh, what he evolves into. He's, I you know, Kobe Altman kept saying when the when questions about Evan would come up, he kept saying he's 22. He's 22. He
1: should be a senior at USC. Crazy to think about. Yeah, that's another part of the Bam comparison. That's interesting, Terry. So. So it, boy, it seems like Bam Adebayo is like 35 years old to me yeah. because he's been around. He started his first season in the NBA was when he was 20 also in okay. 2017, 2018. So he's played six seasons and listen to these points per game for the six seasons. Um, so first year was when he was twenty six point nine, eight point nine 8.9 the next year, 15.9, 18.7, 19.1, and 20.4. That has been the six seasons, and his rebounding has gone from 5.5 to 7.3 to 10.2, 9.0, 10.1, 9.2. So, I mean, last season, you're talking about him being a guy who was 20 points a game and nine rebounds a game. I'm, I'm just curious. If I the mean, Cavs can get I'm, that from Evan Mobley, that's, that's, that's going to be something, right? Uh,
2: yes. How many um, How many
1: three-pointers did he take? He shot 54% from the field Yeah. Um, as a whole. I'm trying to find the raw three-pointers here. He tried 12 last season.
2: Good. <laughs> and made one. Good. That's fine. <laughs> Probably a couple of those were at the buzzer at the quarter. So, yeah. I, to my point is it just showed this guy's developed into an all-league player without taking threes. But he's not a pure dunk guy either. He's got a little post-up game. He's tough physically. Um that's not a bad thing. I think he is Bam is one of those players and I had that's why I wanted you to go over the stats cuz I had a review on my own mind. He's better than what people think think we most He's better than what most of us believe. So that's fine. You look at different players. I'm, I was it's slightly different, but I remember like when I was a young writer, I looked at the styles of different writers back then from Peter Gamas to Bob Ryan were two, and they, their styles are much different. For the Boston Globe, I admire those guys. And, um, you know, Hal Lebowitz in Cleveland, uh, even a, a guy like Bob Sudik was very entertaining there. And it took me a while to find my own style. Sometimes I was just in, imitating them. And I know athletes do the same. So I really believe that um, he'll figure it out. I, I'll just keep saying this unless things radically change. The Mobley family knows how to train basketball players. Those kids are unselfish and they defend. And, and, and so does the older brother. And Well, so, that, that's sports writing.
1: It's an interesting analogy, Terry. Now that yeah. you know, I'm thinking about that, like you, when I, I was the same way, I used to look up to guys like Bob Verdi in Chicago yeah. and, and you mentioned Peter Gammons. But when you're young, you think you need to write like somebody. Mm-hmm. But as you as you're in the business, you realize you can take and it's kind of like being a coach, too. You can take a little bit from this guy and a mm-hmm. little bit from this woman over here and a little bit from this right over here. And pretty soon you become your own uh, person and you do things your own way. But there's little bits of influence. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, right? That as he gets older, he might have a little bit of bam in his game, but he also might have a little bit of five other guys. Right. And and I think that's a really interesting comparison.
2: Yeah, musicians go through the same thing. Anything Mm -hmm. creative, um, art, really, artists do. I mean, you could look at early Picasso compared to later, or whatever you want to do. Uh, And I'm not saying they're all on the same level, but you are creating yourself. I mean, you talk to people who've been in sales for quite a while, and they'll tell you their approach is much different in year seven or eight than it was in year one and two, because you just learn how to close the deal, how to talk to customers, all those things. And so that's why I just, let's see what it it turns into with him, because he has what I want. He's unselfish, he defends, he can pass, and he's about winning. As long as that stays in place, we'll worry about where the offense goes from there.
1: All right, Terry, uh, the other topic I thought would be interesting to get into, I was watching the Louisville-Notre Dame football game on Saturday night, and Donovan Mitchell was there. (laughs) As was
2: like a bunch of other celebrities. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but the big, and I don't, I don't know that we were able to talk about this last week, but there's a lot of concern among Cavs among Cavs fans uh, about his contract extension. And as you brought up in the podcast last week, it'd be stupid for him to sign one now. Cause you know, the, the money will be better the longer he waits and the market changes and all that stuff like that. But if you had to, if you had to predict right now, do you think that he would sign an extension when the time is right to stay here or does that all depend on what happens this year is there a little bit of a LeBron element here where he's riding to see how this thing is moving along what do you think is going to decide whether he sticks around or not or do you think the Cavs have a good shot of holding him holding on I think
2: to if him? they have a good year and they went around the playoffs how yeah, they do they go out and win 45 games and there seems like if there's dysfunction for whatever which we I don't think is going to happen by the way but if that were to come up and also I remember Kobe Altman mentioned at the press conference, he said, when we traded for him, he had three years left in his contract. And the exact quote was, that's an eternity in the NBA. And I remember when I talked to a top NBA executive, you would recognize his name. And I wrote a um, column when, after the trade was made because I said to him, man, Cavs gave up a lot. You know, I go, I like arc. Laurie Marketing. Now, I did not know he's going to turn into scoring. I think twenty four and nine. You know, I didn't see that coming. Back. I, got, I like marketing. They gave up all the draft picks. Uh, Abaje intrigues me a little bit. Uh, I said, Sexton, I could take or leave," uh, but he said, "The exact quote: three years as an attorney in the NBA, and you see, he goes sometimes you have an opportunity to take a big swing, and you better take it, because I could tell you this: had they not done that, they would maybe get better." but you're not going to take any kind of a big jump. And he goes, I know they really want to make the playoffs without LeBron. And so step one, they succeeded. They made the playoffs without LeBron and winning 50 games in the process. That doesn't happen. I don't think a minus Mitchell. So that part is good. So now we go to year two, but if you're Mitchell, it's like, look, I've, I've enjoyed it here. I like it here, but he's not really connected here. And so you just wait to see uh, how things play out. And, they still have to figure out a little bit of the chemistry between Garland and Mitchell. It doesn't mean they are having problems with each other or anything like that, but just, those are two really ball dominant guards. And I know some teams have them, but I, you, then you lose your big guys. You know, we're talking about Evan Mobley and, and, and
1: Jared Allen. Jared right. Allen.
2: Um, and even your small forward. Now, if you have Struess. You know, now that guy's got to get more shots than uh, Okoro did. So you, or even Nian coming off the bench, who I like, by the way, I think fans will like him too. Uh, So you have to really be moving the ball more. And that's why I wanted to see what JB did. He he has stuff in his coaching bag where the ball moves more and players move more because you recall the year before Donovan came. Um, especially when Rubio was flying, they had very good ball movement and player movement without the ball. That was one of the things that intrigued me and other fans that brought them back in quickly.
1: All right, well, we'll get our first look at the Cavs tomorrow night. They are actually playing their first preseason game at Atlanta. That's 730, and then the Cavs will be home for a preseason game on Thursday against Orlando. Then they got a couple more um, after that. Boy, season starting. It's it's going to be two weeks from Wednesday, the twenty fifth. Terry, they're opening against the Nets on Wednesday, the twenty fifth of October. It'll be here pretty soon. So.
2: All right, I got a question um, about the NBA. Sure. All right. Real fast. You got ten seconds to answer. Kevin Durant plays where? Brooklyn. <laughs> How about that? My point. I last I checked it was Phoenix. Oh,
1: <laughs>
2: How about that?
1: Oh man. See where
2: I'm going with this
1: where are you going with it
2: at the least he still would be a top three player in the nba you don't know where he plays not you it's because he keeps moving around
1: yeah like my first reaction was brooklyn and then like i thought about it for five seconds and i'm like oh my god that trade happened last year
2: yeah so was phoenix (laughs) brooklyn golden state and okc and other than when he was with the juggernaut at Golden State,
1: no championship rings. And Phoenix is doing what you said, which is they're, they took a swing. They're going Taking for it. a big it swing, yeah. With the new owner. And, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens there. And, so. and,
2: and I, I like that JB mentioned that I think it was an allusion to Durant and perhaps Kyrie also that if you look at the super teams quickly thrown together, how many of them, win a title. And then he talked about how Denver and Miami were in the finals. You know, yes, Denver, you know, but they have a homegrown star and Miami did bring in Jimmy Butler, but it's not, it's not a, this glorified AAU team. And he, so, I mean, I got a question. I like Durant, by the way, as a player. And I think it seems like he's a fairly decent guy. But do you really want to follow Kyrie Irving anywhere? I'm serious. This is Kyrie's idea. Let's all go to Brooklyn and have a good time.
1: Yeah, but that's kind of what makes the NBA fun, Terry, is like there's the Miami approach where it's like Jimmy Butler and a bunch of undrafted free agents who have just bought into a culture. And then you have the super teams and then you have the narrative in Golden State, like how long can these guys stay great? you know, where they're keeping the core together. And, you know, the Cavs, they bring in a superstar and, and they have a really young, good group around. It's, that's what makes the NBA a lot of fun is just seeing different ways to get to the same place and who fails and who who and, succeeds. And, and, and
2: see and, what, the, what the Cavs are doing is sort of the Jimmy Butler, the Miami way. Now, granted, they have other first round picks, but, you know, Mitchell comes in like Butler did to see if he could take them to a higher level. Now you turn around and you look at, you know, Golden State won a title after Durant left. Don't ask me how they did that, by the way. That's that's pure culture. And Steve Kerr, who is a Hall of Fame coach, uh, I remember Kerr is now in his second year in the NBA. Cavs have traded for him, and I got to know him real. That was really back in the day when you were able to watch as a BD person watch practice. I even played in pickup games with Steve Kerr because they would have these guys coming off the bench and needed a run, as they would say. So they would get a couple of PR guys and a couple of sports writers. There would be six NBA players out there and four of us. And Kerr wanted to work on running off picks. And so the deal was, don't press Terry. Let him bring up the ball, bring the ball up. And I was to just watch for him to come and hit him with a pass so he could shoot the ball. You know, think about that. Kerr then would put up. Chairs and dribble around chairs to, to improve his ball handling. So we go out to lunch, and we're talking about him growing up and in Los Angeles, where he was a very good baseball player, by the way. And then playing at the University of Arizona his only only Division One Grant. And he had been been drafted by Phoenix. They dump out him after a year. Wayne never liked him because he liked shooters. Brings him in. Remember this is before everybody's obsessed with three pointers. And he says, I think I'm going to get cut. I said, no, you're not, Steve. Because I knew Embry. I said, Embry likes you. They don't bring you, They're not going to cut you. He goes, well, if I get make it, I'll probably never play. Of course, he's just got done playing in a game with a sports runner. <laughs> I mean, maybe everybody can think that. And I said, no. I said, you're going to play 10 years in the NBA because the three-point shooting thing is going to matter. I didn't know it was going to be a session, but it's going to matter. And I just know how you are. And when it is, you want me lunch which he paid off when he was with the Bulls, I may add.
1: Is that and right?
2: Yes, he did. Several years later. Yes, and I do still have his cell phone, and I periodically text him. And to think, you know, the last time the, the Suns were really good until just recently, they did the quick thing with Chris Paul, but that was a David Griffin and Steve Kerr built that team a few years before that that has some success as a GM. Think about his career. I forgot how many rings he has as a player, five or whatever because he had bulls and spurs then he is a a successful GM uh with Phoenix and then he goes and builds this he took over a pretty good team at Golden State but turned it into this you know juggernaut it's one of the most remarkable careers overall in basketball in history
1: and changed the way the game is played yeah and in the process top, right i and mean on top with... of that yeah Go ahead, David. No, I was just going to say with the emphasis on the three pointers and the, and the motions they run. Yeah, so the people motions. Yeah. People had never seen that stuff before.
2: And it isn't just a guy drives into the lane and kicks to somebody in the corner. You know that's that's a lazy way of playing it, and also, his best teams were usually in the top three in defensive uh, all the defensive analytics. It wasn't just pure run and gun. Can you imagine if Durant just stayed there?
1: It would have been even more of a dynasty than it, than so, it was. I mean, but... I mean,
2: what kind of thing? I'm very serious. I know I'm on a real tangent here, but it it, it it applies a little bit to, like, if you're Donovan Mitchell, you're Jimmy Butler or whatever. Do you really want to just go chase after some other star to try and throw this thing together quickly? Uh, and how many rings has LeBron run in
1: L.A., may I ask? One?
2: Yeah, the COVID, the COVID year. He carried them. But that's it. And I'm not saying it would have been any different here, but it isn't as easy. And he won one here. he won two with Miami. Um, And it's just, it's a different league. But I am glad it isn't just slap some guys together, play ball, and I get my championship ring.
1: Alright Terry, well we don't know what's in the mind of Donovan Mitchell. I, mean, I I do want I'm not trying to get all Cavs fan conspiracy theory here, but I'm wondering if like that playoff series in New York for him to see what New York was like would make him go to New York, but a lot of times it's just money and
2: yeah, and is. culture
1: and, and, and so we don't know what he's thinking and where it up. And Like way, you said, there's a and Donovan, long way to go. So
2: Donovan's thunk in the playoffs. Can we say that? He said it. Yeah, it is. Exactly. So that counts for something, too. I don't mean there, but I'm simply saying that if you want to be a guy and want to play in a big stage or whatever, well, then you better show it.
1: So, all right, end of that rant. I don't know how I went there. <laughs> no, that's good. All right, Terry, uh, let's move on to the Guardians. The You had a column last few days about, and we don't say this very often, but the headline was something like the Guardians front office had – a bad season in 2023 yeah. why don't we run through that a little bit kind of why you say that and and what do you think they've learned from maybe what they've gone through the last uh, year with some of the deals they've made well why don't you start where, where you want to start with that well the one that was really interesting that i i know a lot of guardians fans are still talking about is this junior camonero mm-hmm. deal and you don't hear this very often in terms of I mean, Chris Antonetti, I think, just came out and said it was a bad trade. I mean, that was the quote. Yeah, and you and don't that's hear my them- that question, too. That was your question okay? Uh, at the the end of season press conference. so And then they kind of explained, like, this is what happens sometimes. You think you have something figured out. You make a deal, and every deal has risks and upsides to it. And he said it was just a bad trade. Uh, And Junior Caminero now coming out of the Dominican Republic is really um, putting together some good numbers, and he's only, what, 20 years old, I think, this season. Um, Talk about that trade and also just, again, why you think they had a bad year in 2023 overall.
2: Well, the Camonero trade—I mean—had I don't think any real impact on the season. He just came up for a few games with Tampa Bay at the end, but it was a very odd trade. Camonero was—I think—you know—signed to 16 or wherever. Dominican. Uh, he played one year in the minors for them, but he played in—it's the lowest level, the Dominican Rookie League. But he did hit nine home runs, it's like second in the league, in, in, and he. And they said even back then uh, where they did the um, velocity off the bat, which they could even do with those lower levels, that the guy was smoking it. I mean, he was really – I mean, you saw flames and stuff when he hit the ball. And he's still so young. They traded him for a pitcher named Tobias Myers. You could look it up. I don't know what team he's on anymore. It was a disaster. It was a very, very odd deal for them because anybody with power potential – you, when you trade him for a guy kind of binds, it was like a fourth round pick Myers. It's not like he was, you know, this can't miss prospect. So, um, but when you look at them, they had a bad year a Zenito didn't work out. And then uh, Bell, you know, hit some at Miami, but that didn't work. And then when they tried kind of other things, it, it just didn't seem to happen. Whether it was, and by the way, I'm not saying they had a bad year because they traded Aaron Savali, who has a five point three six ERA since the deal. Um in retrospect, I'll take a I'll take a flyer on Kyle Ma Manzardo over Savali, who I just felt like he's been on disabled list five times. He's probably going there again. And the fact that he pitched so poorly there, I wonder if he's healthy. because uh, he was pitching great for Cleveland. He had two point four ERA after he came out of this off the disabled list early in the year i Rosario hit two fifty after going to the Dodgers. Uh, you know, now Bell did hit, Bell, Bell hit, Bell decided after almost twelve months of not hitting, dating back to when he was with San Diego, started to hit. But what you really you missed on on your two free agent moves and you put twenty percent of your payroll into those two guys, and it just seemed like nothing else you tried
1: worked. Well, you know, they say in the NFL, Terry, you need to give a draft, what, three or four years before you know who did well and who didn't. I'm wondering if if Manzardo might change how we view this year. Yes. If he comes up and, and happens absolutely. to make an impact. That might change, like, oh, well, they didn't do as bad as we thought when they when they brought him in and, and the Savali trade and all that stuff. So I guess the, why, the final yeah. chapter's not written yet on that, on That's this year. That's why but, I
2: was not critical of that trade. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of fans were upset and whatever. I go, I just didn't trust Savali. Now at the time, Insarov was only hitting 240. I think was he, with his OPS about 750 at Triple A, but he's only 22. This guy was considered one of the top prospects hitting in the minors, and I think there was only a second full pro season. Um, I'm like, I watched tapes of him. He's a left hand hitter with power to both alleys. I like him. I think that's something they they could use. And it may be one of those deals where the Tampa Bay goes, well, we we're trying to win this year. That was probably not the best thing we could have done, which would be nice to finally fleece them. Um, so that would be good. And I'm just – it was an odd year. You know, they never got hot this year. Where was the winning 8 out of 10, something like that? I don't remember them having that streak. I kept waiting for it.
1: They didn't. They didn't. And it, 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 I think Hoynes's lead the other day was like, uh, mediocrity or inconsistency. Uh, thy name was the guardians in 2023 yeah, because was, it, was, it was always win two, lose two, win one, lose two, win three, lose two. Like it never, they never got on a roll. So
2: and then you had the um, you know Frank uh retiring hanging over it I'm not sure they had a big impact by the way let's give the twins some credit i think they they played like uh, 65% of the they win like 65% of their games or something uh after remember they said well the, the guardians quit with making those trades and then uh minnesota i think finished like 33 and 22 or something so give them credit but you even think yeah, like, that they bringing, it they bring in Giolito and This guy's throwing batting practice. It was just like whatever they tried this year, the short-term remedies didn't work. And you're bringing in, you know, Cole Calhoun and uh, uh, Ramon, what's his name? Laureano. Laureano, Laureano. yeah. Mm -hmm. Just guys. Um, So we'll see. Now, that said, this guy was GM of the year last year, or or executive of the year, excuse me, and they have a great track record and they have a ton of starting no pitching. I just think that, I mean, look, like this, you know, if I were a managerial candidate, I mean, I'm very interested in working there. And as Francona said, they're, they're, you know, they're not looking just fire managers all the time.
1: Well, let me ask you about that, Terry. So they're trying to find Terry Francona's replacement, and I want to do a little role-playing here. Let's pretend that you're the Guardians. What are, like, one or two questions that you would ask these candidates coming in that would be important to you as the Guardians to get an answer in terms of how the team would run? What would you want to know from some of these manager candidates? We've seen some names. Uh, Craig Albernaz, the bullpen pitching coach uh, for the Giants has has been out there. They're interviewing a lot of people. There's a lot of people on their board. But what would you ask specifically that you'd want to hear them answer in an interview? A job interview, not a media interview.
2: I mean, how are you going to handle it if it comes the end of July and we got to trade some of these guys? Are you going to be okay with that? Uh, Do you understand Frank or Francona's favorite line, April in Cleveland? It's cold. Nobody's there. You know, it's not a lot of real exciting environment. And then are you willing to? All these guys will always tell you as their managers or their coaches, Oh, yeah, I love young players. They love young players till they have a bunch of them and they start to lose. So that, you have to understand, that's what you're getting into. Now, a key thing would be the coaching staff. Because I want, unless you have a brilliant idea for a pitching coach, I want Carl Willis to stay. And Sandy already is staying. Um, And then we might talk about hitting coach, but just... Other people, Sarbaugh is very well regarded as a third base coach, right-hand man of the manager. You know that. How much continuity do you want? Now, the key thing would be also talking to these coaches. Will they be able to handle working for someone else? Um, So there's a lot of dynamics there. Now, I'm going to turn it to you. David, you are interviewing with me, and you are a managerial candidate, and you would want to know.
1: I'm the candidate or I'm the team? Yes. No, you're the candidate. I'm the candidate. Okay. So I would want to know, um, boy, I was thinking about it the other way. I wasn't thinking about what. where do they see the payroll going yep. mm-hmm. the next few years is important because that'll that'll tell you what, and where where is our franchise in terms of a life cycle? Um, yes. You know, I know the Dolans have always said we want to be competitive every year, but this year they, they weren't that competitive like, what do we? What is? What is this three-year, three to five-year window that you see? What, what should we be aspiring to? Are we? Are we trying to win in twenty twenty-four? Are we trying to develop, or both? Yeah, that's you're gonna what I, what I would ask. a real
2: basic thing for the third year in a row. Are you going to have the youngest roster in the M major leagues? That probably destines or sentences you to mediocrity. Okay, go ahead.
1: No, so that, that's a good point, Terry. And the other thing I would ask is like. Who are the who are the leaders in the locker room? Yeah. And, that's a and good who one. are the players and and who are the players who might be more difficult? I'd want to know about the personalities because that you know, we never really saw much of that with with Tito because it was all done behind closed doors, but he was masterful at like if something flared up, he would take care of it and you'd never either you'd hear very little about it or it would be just it would just go away. He was very good at holding players accountable and I think going in if I was a candidate, I want to know like who are the leaders and who are kind of the the, the, maybe the guys who are a little bit not great teammates might need to, to be treated in a different way. I don't know. That's just off the top of my head. Because mm-hmm. Tito was very good at that. I'd he ask, could take all, all different ages, all different styles right. of players, and, and keep the thing together. I'd ask him, why can't you develop hitters? What is,
2: what is the problem
1: wow. here? <laughs> I mean, that gets right to it.
2: Yeah, because we need to do that. Nobody is better at pitchers than you are, and but hit and often most organizations find it easier to develop hitters than pitchers. Now, is it the drafting but then you turn around and of course, you would fall into the will Benson the whole mantra now nolan Jones, will Benson, you know these guys you gave up on them too soon, and what happened there so I would want to know about your plan as an organization for these hitters because I look at that lineup and I got
1: how many legit hitters? Go ahead. Two, three. You count, So like you've got Josh Naylor, Stephen Kwan.
2: You got Jose H. Cornerstone. You got Naylor who came into his own. You have Bo who I, by the way, Really hit ten, hit ten home runs after the All Star break. You know, Bo, Bo was one of the best things about Frank. Or um, excuse me, ancinetti was correct about that. That was one of the best things about the season. And then um, Quan is a really nice leadoff hitter and get on base and play good defense. So I got a leadoff hitter. I've got Jose wherever you want to bat him, and I've got Naylor, who I think. Assuming he does, he can't get any heavier though, David. I would ask them about that. Uh, I love Josh, but he gets starts getting heavier and heavier. We're going to get more injuries. That's the problem, by the way. If you're heavy and you get an oblique injury, they say it's because you're heavy, but thinner guys get it too. So uh, <laughs> that, they're pulling ribcage. But nonetheless, that's one of the advantages of if you're not too heavy. They can't say the reason you got hurt is because you're heavy. But I would really discuss that. Say and then say what happened to him in this? Now, he played well down the stretch hitting, but I really uh, uh I thought he was gonna have a much closer year to his all star year than wherever he ended up with third two 30, two two fifty and thirteen homers or whatever it was. Um so I'm those would be things. Those are those are fun questions on, from either side of the desk on that.
1: Yeah, I, I would love to be in the fly on the wall for some of those because there's mm-hmm. so many variables. They need to talk about analytics and how they yes. work that in and how they feel about it and all the stuff we just talked about. And just, by the um, way,
2: here, here's, a, here's a question you should ask if you're a candidate: Are you sending lineups down every day at two o'clock like several teams are doing in the league? And I'm just, I'm just like a uh,
1: superintendent of the assembly line. Several teams have the GM sending down lineups. The analytics and GM, yep. Really
2: interesting. Oakland,
1: Oakland's done it for I mean, a long I mean, we saw some of that in, that, in, the, in the Moneyball movie. There was yeah, a, some great it. scenes. in Tampa Bay The lineup does a card lot, is mine. <laughs> Tampa Bay does a lot of that, too. And yeah.
2: Now, if there's suggestions, and truly suggestions, that's fine. Because you somebody you could look at and go, you know, when this guy bats second, against right-handed, whatever it is, as long as there's some real data behind it, it could be, you can't think of everything as a manager. But if, it, if it, this is what it is. And then on top of that, you're saying, if you get, you're get, you down by two in the sixth inning, this guy should pitch. And believe me, they have all these things worked up, some of these teams. There's nothing wrong with giving it to them. But if you're making him marry that, then you're probably going to end up with an ugly
1: divorce. And you don't want that. All right. Well, some really fascinating discussions are going to be had with the manager candidates, and uh, boy, they've got to move. You'd think fairly soon, probably by the end of the playoffs here. Um, so, in the next few weeks, and we'll see how that all shakes out. So, all right, Terry, we got to get to some of these outstanding responses we've been getting from some Terry's talking listeners. So, I thought we would get into a few of these. We, like I said, we have one from Kenya. So, um, this first one is from longtime listener Ed Cohen from Reno, Nevada. Ed is a frequent writer inner to the show as we call him and ed says i grew up on the east side mainly in lindhurst and moved away from the area after earning my journalism degree at ou my dad raised me as a cleveland sports fan he and his sister were huge fans for life as a kid he worked as a vendor at cleveland stadium and i think at league park i wow. saw two no hitters at the old stadium dean chance of the twins against the tribe and dennis eckersley over frank tanana and the angels this is when I read Ed's letter, it makes me think of the Forrest Gump movie. Yeah. <laughs> so he was at some really cool stuff. We went to some Cavs games too. In high school, I was at Game Seven of the Miracle of Richfield series alone. Mm-hmm. I told my parents I was going with a friend, but I was actually the only one of my friends with enough foresight to think there might be a Game Seven. So I bought my ticket before Game Six. It was the most intense sporting event I've ever been to. But my strongest devotion has always been to the Browns. The incredible game against the Steelers in nineteen seventy-three. I was also at the stadium with a friend, not my dad, for the miracle comeback in the 1987 playoffs against the Jets. My wife and I watched Game 7 of the 2016 NBA Finals from an apartment we were renting in San Jose, not far from Oakland, where the game was played. When the buzzer sounded, I literally thought and eventually said, what just happened? Mm -hmm. It was almost impossible for me to believe that a Cleveland team had actually just won a championship. I've passed on my father's and my my love and devotion to Cleveland teams to my wife, who's from Roanoke, Virginia, and my son, who attended the 2016 Victory Parade flying in from his home in New York City. Why have I remained a Cleveland sports fan? Number one, it's fun. It's not just entertainment, but a unique kind of entertainment because nothing is scripted. Anything can happen. Even with all the history of disappointments and sometimes literally unbelievable, torturous, haunting losses, it's an emotional and addictive experience. If you invest your heart in something, you're going to get your heart broken sometimes, but hardly anything matches the heartfelt euphoria of a dramatic victory by the team you've gotten to know, grown connected to over many seasons and times of your life. I assume people from other cities have similar feelings, but I've never found a devotion to match that of Cleveland fans, be they lifelong locals or the many ex-expats like me. Wow. Well, thanks for that, Ed. I I have to condense that a little bit, but uh, you've seen it all.
2: You can tell he's a journalism student.
1: Yeah, that's right. (laughs)
2: Pretty well written. No, I I mean, it's a compliment. Yeah, pretty well written. Yeah, for sure. And I thought his last couple paragraphs sum up why people, not just in Cleveland, but others um, are sports fans. And I know this, I've talked to some top New York sports editors, you know, from the book business, Not, not there. And why it's so difficult to write good sports fiction because. It seems like the unscripted part of sports itself is better than fiction.
1: Absolutely. It's built in. It's built into the thing. Yeah. And you you can't make it up sometimes. No, you can't. (laughs) Yeah. All right. This next one is from Michael Gerba from Nairobi, Kenya. And Michael says, I grew up in Cleveland. So that might explain why I'm a Cleveland sports fan, but I think the real question is why do I remain a Cleveland sports yes. fan?
2: Yes, that's at least that's the question. For
1: He says, at least that's the question my wife always asks me. I have not lived in Cleveland now since graduating from St. Ignatius High School, so it's now close to 30 years living outside Cleveland. I've lived in Chicago, Nicaragua, St. Paul, Minnesota, Peru, and now Kenya. I think the reason I have remained is that connecting to Cleveland sports is a way for me to also feel connected to my hometown and family. Talking about the Browns, Guardians, and Cavs with my family is an easy way to stay connected. The Browns and the Guardians have a special place in my heart, a little more than the Cavs. I think this has to do with working as an usher for games at the old municipal stadium from 1991 to 94. The opportunity to see the games on a regular basis while I was still in high school was special. Um, And he goes on to say, I guess in the end, Cleveland sports fans are special and scattered around the world. I belong to the Browns, Backers clubs in Peru and have found other Clevelanders in Kenya (laughs) to talk sports. Speaking for us that live around the world, Clevelanders find Clevelanders and use sports to express our love for the city. Uh, Thanks again for the podcast and for keeping all the Clevelanders around the world connected to our beloved sports teams and city. And uh, boy, he says he flew from Peru back here to go to game six and seven of the world series in 2016. Wow. And he was able to get a ticket for game six, but he had to watch game seven outside progressive field in the courtyard.
2: Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for that, Michael. Yeah, the
2: Cubs fans got all the tickets for game
1: seven. <laughs> they did, they did. But this is kind of what you're getting at. And you were talking yeah. about a minute ago, Terry, it's like th- th- this is something special about Cleveland that I think a lot of people don't realize um, if you're not from here, that, it, that it's kind of this bond.
2: And I also believe, whether you talk – it's not just Cleveland, but I think several of these kind of Midwestern cities are that uh, we don't have the elitist view of, like, say, people in uh, some of the bigger markets that – no, sports, they may not act – they don't want to act like there's a big deal about sports in San Francisco or whatever. Here, we don't care. Yeah. When are the Browns going to finally win? I mean, I'm just sick of this, you know? Oh, no, no. What kind of trade is that the Guardians just made? You know, that is important to us. It's in the fabric. And I think also what he mentioned, too, about the bonding within families is critical because you could be in Nairobi and you're talking to, you know, your brother or your cousin in Garfield Heights and. I mean, you live in two, literally two different worlds, but it's like Watson, is this thing going to actually work? And you can both have an opinion about it.
1: Yeah. From different continents, like you, you said, know. different worlds. So, all right, here's the last one for today, Terry, and we'll keep reading these as we can. So this one is from Josh Weiss. And he says, Terry, you asked her some out-of-towner stories. He says, I grew up in South Euclid and Beachwood watching the Kozar Browns and the original Dog Pound, going to Richfield Coliseum for calves and forced soccer games, and celebrating the opening of Jacobs Field after years of watching bad teams. I moved to Scottsdale, Arizona in 2000. My fan, my, all my friends know me as a homer. And I hate how some fans root for individual players instead of their hometown teams. I can happily root for both my Cleveland and Arizona teams without being a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. Every Sunday when when my kids were babies, I'd go to a sports bar with friends so that we could all watch our hometown teams play. Great memories of all those baby carriers lined up among friends as centerpieces (laughs) so that the guys could get together while the wives enjoy their Sundays in quiet. 15 years later with one kid in college and the other in high school, the same group still gets together to watch their hometown teams play. He says, congratulations on a hundred podcast episodes. I probably listened to all of them to get a taste of my hometown along with having a cleveland.com subscription to make sure I can read Terry's columns. Thanks for that. And he says, looking forward to the next hundred podcasts. And again, that's from Josh Weiss. I can only imagine the little baby carrier sitting yeah, on the table. I've never,
2: that is unique. I've a lot or of them.
1: Yeah. So that's great.
2: <laughs> and, uh, I We do appreciate, you know, whether the subscriptions and the listening to people, uh, because um, every year I read a column that says the reason, you know, we're here is you. We being in the journalism business is you, because without readers, without listeners, there's no us. Without you, there's no us. And without the loyalty, I think, to the Cleveland sports fans, uh, there's no us. And thanks for that. You know, I've now been in the business 5,421 years, and uh, so I am (laughs) grateful to you all. And I I sound facetious doing that
1: from the bottom of my heart. I really do mean that. Well said, and I'm not going to add because I can't add anything better. I'm going to leave that as it is. So, all right, Terry, I think we're done here, right? I think so. All right. Again, if you'd like to hit us with uh, some stories, thoughts, anything have to do with Cleveland sports, hit us at sports at cleveland.com you should go sign up for Terry's newsletter. It is free. It's a weekly newsletter. comes in your inbox every Monday, and it has everything that Terry's written. Talk to you next week on Terry's Talk.